We return to the text that was read earlier from the prophet Haggai. So we consider his third sermon, short though it is, to God's people. By studying his sermon, I want us to consider this morning the hope that is ours in holiness. The hope of holiness. I hope you have some nice neighbors. We do. God's been kind to surround us with both believing and unbelieving folks, uh, all of them uh, in good relationships at the dead end street we're on. This year, one of them made a whole smorgasbord of Christmas goodies to pass out to the neighbors on the street. And after a whole day of mixing and baking and bagging, she wasn't quite feeling well and ended up testing positive for COVID. So, rightly assumed that her visible good deed was contaminated by invisible germs. And so she trashed it all, waited a few weeks, and redid it all, and we had New Year's bags of goodies this year from our neighbors. In the Christian life, we face a great danger. And it's the danger of going through all the the good motions of the Christian life. And and by going through the motions, I don't say we're we're faking it. We're, we're, We're trying to do the things that Christians should do. Those are visible good works. But often, they are contaminated by the sin in our hearts that is unseen maybe to anyone else but God. It doesn't necessarily mean you aren't a Christian, though the Bible does warn us that a perpetual life of unholy living likely indicates that your profession is empty. So that's a reality in the scriptures, but but I'm addressing those who, who are confident of their standing in Christ by faith. Sometimes we get so busy with doing the right things that we don't give attention to having a right heart. For example, the psalmist who wrote, knowing full well his relationship to the Lord by faith. So we're not doubting his his Christianity, but he says, search me, O God, and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me. This is... This is not, in a sense, holiness 101, the basics of understanding righteousness and holiness. This is kind of advanced discipleship now, where Haggai is calling on God's people in that day and and now by preservation of his word to us today, he's calling on us to, to think deeply, to get beyond the surface. God knows as well as most of us know, that you're doing a lot of good things, that you're striving for harmony in your marriage, you're trying to parent your kids well, you're trying to be ethical in the workplace, you're trying to find a place to serve here in the body and do things seen or unseen to love others. All those good things. The call isn't, don't do those anymore. The call is, do those things with the purest heart possible, which comes only 
out of this desperation for holiness, a deeper and deeper holiness, a better and better view of the holiness of God that continually transforms us so that we're more and more intolerant of sin, ours or others. The prophet Haggai is warning God's people that doing right things does not necessarily mean there is a right heart. According to Ecclesiastes, this would be the proverbial fly in the ointment. A whole whole flask of ointment that may be good and pure, but there's a dead fly in it. And the dead fly causes it to stink. It affects the whole, the purity of it all. God wants us to know this morning from Haggai's message in chapter 2 here that holiness matters. And at the end of the day, the good things that we do only have significance if our heart was pure before God. In our story of Haggai, it meant that God didn't need a temple built on the mountaintop as a holy place if the people who built it aren't holy. He wants their hearts. He doesn't need a building of stone and tree lumber. He doesn't need the gold shine. He doesn't need that. What he wants is the hearts of his people. Now that building was serving a purpose. So yes, we could say God wanted that but it was in order to facilitate the hearts of his people worshiping him. So this morning, we we take our eyes off the good works and the right things that we're doing, and we say, that's not what's being evaluated this morning. What's being evaluated is the heart that is producing those things. Haggai just preached his second sermon That was chapter 2 and verse 1, and there's a date stamp there. The seventh month, 21st day. He preached that message, you remember, to encourage the people because they started building and it looked like their work was insignificant. They're thinking, what's the use? I don't have any value, any purpose. This isn't very significant. And the message from the Lord comes and says, no, I am with you. My presence makes this work significant. My purpose makes this work significant. That was in the seventh month, the 21st day. Now in chapter 2, verse 10, he gives another sermon, another word from God with another time stamp. It's the 24th day of the ninth month. So almost exactly two months later, the prophet comes with another important message. But let me give you a little insight into what happened in between the seventh month and the ninth month. You see, Haggai is a contemporary with the next prophet that's there in your scriptures, the prophet Zechariah. These prophets together are trying to get God's people to get this project done. Oh, about 70 years later, the last prophet there, Malachi, will come on the scene and and deliver his message. Right now, Haggai and Zechariah are kind of tag-teaming to 
bring God's word to the people. And if you look at Zechariah chapter 1, we find that his word comes right in the middle of the two months. Haggai preached the seventh month and the ninth month. Zechariah begins this way, in the eighth month. Still the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them. Here's Zechariah's message in the eighth month to the people that Haggai is also preaching to. Thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. It was a message of repentance. Don't be like your fathers that heard the message and did not regard holiness as all that important. They thought they were good enough. So the seventh month, Zechariah has told the people, this is significant work that God has called you to. And he stirs them up and they're ready to go. One month later, God sends Zechariah on the scene who says, listen, you've got to be concerned about holiness. Repent, clean up your heart and return. Holiness matters. And now one month later in the ninth month, Haggai again takes the pulpit. And he has a message for God's people. And his message begins with two significant questions that establish the problem. He wants the people to see, why is Zechariah preaching on repentance? Remember, this is called the remnant. This is, this is the cream of the crop of the Israelites. They were the ones willing to return and do this temple work. So why is Zechariah preaching repentance? And, and why is Haggai taking the platform now to preach again. His two questions set the stage. The Lord tells Haggai to ask these questions publicly so the priests can give the answer. Verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? So, this is a general question. There are some nuances to it that you could find in combing through Levitical law. The general idea is meat that has been offered to the Lord. Now, it's holy, and the priest is carrying it kind of in the apron. And if he touches other things, do those things become holy because this was holy? So, that's the question. Carrying something holy and it touches these other things, does it become holy? And the priests have an answer to the question, and it is no. Those other things aren't made holy simply because they touched something that is holy. Now he's going to kind of look at it from the other direction. Verse 13. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, 
meaning any of these things, the stew, the wine, the oil, or any kind of food, does it become unclean? So in the first question it was, does something that is declared holy, when it touches other things, does it make them holy? No, it doesn't. Now we're looking at the opposite. If someone touches a dead body, and if you read the Levitical law, uh, and if you started your Bible reading in Genesis at the new year, you've probably labored through that by about now, you'll see that touching a dead body would make them unclean, and they'd have to be unclean till the end of the day and wash, and then they're ceremonially clean again. So that's a common expression of uncleanness, contact with a dead body. So the question is, if they are defiled and unclean and touch any of those other things, do they become unclean? And the priest answered with, yes, it does become unclean. So here's the point of the questions. Ceremonial holiness is non-transferable. Because the meat was holy, you, you don't just touch everything else and it makes it all holy. The holiness doesn't transfer to other things. However, ceremonial uncleanness is transferable. When something unclean touches something clean, it now becomes unclean. Well, that kind of makes sense in our minds. You could think of it this way. You, you don't come to church and catch health from someone, right? But you can certainly catch sickness. You can catch their cough or something. So the unclean is spreadable, but the clean isn't. That's the point being made through these kind of technical questions regarding the law. But let's face it, Haggai's point is not to clarify some question people had about the nuances of clean and unclean processes. There's a stinging conclusion to these questions in verse 14. Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people. This reminds me of when Nathan confronted David with this, with this moving story about shepherds and sheep and a poor man had these sheep and a rich man came and took his last and favored sheep and slaughtered it and made a meal for his guests, even though he had all kinds of sheep to choose from. And David was so mad at that story. And then the prophet says, it's you. So it is with your heart. That's exactly what we see here. Technical questions, does the holy make these things holy? No, it doesn't. Does the unholy, does the unclean make other things unclean? Yes, it does. And the word of the Lord to the people is, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. You see, Zechariah was seeing this people begin to build the temple after Haggai stirred them up with a good sermon. But he realized they're going about building and doing the work, thinking that's the great end all of pleasing God, yet he's seeing the uncleanness of heart manifest in, in the way their marriages were unfolding, in the, in the angry expressions and losing their temper. He's seeing all this vice and wickedness that flows from the heart. 
And he's calling them to repentance. And then, one month later, God sends Haggai with this message. Starts with these questions, but somehow we were probably thinking the technicalities weren't really the issue. What was the issue was something unclean contaminates everything else. And God says, the work of your hands, the building of this temple is contaminated because your heart is contaminated. So it is with this people. The work of their hands, he says, is unclean. The temple project was getting done. And it was starting to take shape and it looked good to everyone who saw it. But God wasn't first and foremost looking at the progress of the building. He was looking at their hearts. Notice what he says in verse 14. So it is with this people and with this nation before me, the way I see it. This expression has to do before the face of. Before my face, I'm seeing defiled people who care little about holiness. And yet, they're finding some kind of satisfaction or some kind of peace of mind that they're doing all this good stuff. This isn't as unusual as we might think. Because we can squabble with our spouse all week long. We can live on that edge of frustration and irritability and yet come to church and, and, and be moved by the voices of congregational worship and we can hear the word and think, oh, I agree with that. But to obey, to put to practice the truth is, is better than sacrifice. To hear and put it into practice is better than the sacrifices of our worship, Samuel told King Saul in the Old Testament. God's concerned about our hearts. Does he want us doing good things? Of course, but he wants those good things flowing out of a good, pure heart. And these people were content with the outward good and seemed to be tolerating, at least at some level, an uncleanness of heart. And again, I want to frame this in the context of the, these were kind of the good people, so to speak. These were the ones that came to church every Sunday. These are the ones that really were trying to get it right, and yet there's lessons to be learned for us then to think that these good people would respond to Haggai's preaching. Consider your ways. Stop building your own houses. Let's, let's get on board with God's agenda. And they did. But that spiritual kind of enthusiasm tapered off, and Haggai stirred him up again. So now we're building. And then Zechariah comes and says, oh, but, but guard your heart. Don't let those little seeds of unholiness take root. And they made it another month. And now Haggai stands again and he calls them to attention on this matter of holiness. Because before the eye of God, their hearts were known. God sent Samuel to anoint a king of Jesse's sons and they summon Jesse's sons. And they go down the list and they're thinking, surely it's this guy, man. He really looks like a leader for a nation. And they pass on all of the sons. So confusing it is that the prophet turns to Jesse and says, are these all your sons? And, and almost like apologetically, well, well, I mean, there's one more. 
There's the shepherd boy, David, and they're like, call him. Because the command was, bring all your sons before the prophet. And, and the lesson God gives, we're familiar with. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Well, that same all-seeing, pervasive perspective of God is coming to play here in our text. From the surrounding countryside of Jerusalem, it looks great. Not only is the foundation laid, but now they're building the temple. This is progress in just a matter of months. And God says, no, it's not. The, The works of your hands is unclean. That temple is unclean. That's not a place for me because it's offered out of contaminated hearts. What are we to learn from this? I want to share four applications of Haggai's sermon. Number one, holiness doesn't just happen. Any of you kids studied the law of thermodynamics? Second law of thermodynamics. The law of, you may not use that word, entropy. Did you study that? Everything tends to get worse, to wear out, to slow down. Apply this to Christmas presents. Everything plastic with batteries tends to break by February, right? That kind of comes to play here when we think of sin and its, and its drag on us in our flesh. Holiness is a pursuit it's not a destination. We arrived there, we've done it, we've, we've overcome sin. Now I don't have to worry about it anymore. That's not how it works. And this is the point of the questions that Haggai mentions there in 12 and 13. Holiness doesn't just happen. It, it can't just spread and affect other things. No, what affects us and other things is unholiness. That's what spreads Based on the timeline of our story, that means a lot can happen in just one month. Because we gathered last week, and it was the seventh month, and Haggai stirred them up, where God says, be strong, work, and don't be afraid, and I will bless you. And that moved the people to begin temple construction. One month later, Zechariah is preaching, repent, Be zealous about holiness. Another month later, Haggai again is saying, remember, unclean hearts defile the the finished product. Guard your heart. Holiness doesn't just happen. And so again and again, the Bible is urging us to pursue holiness and to beware of this pull of sin. It starts all the way back right after Eden in Genesis chapter 4. When Cain was getting out of sorts and God tells him, be careful, Cain. Be mindful of sin. Do what's right. Why? Because sin is crouching at the door. Holiness isn't just going to happen. You're not going to get up tomorrow and plow through your week and get more holy by the end because sin is crouching at the door. And our adversary, the devil, has set his traps all through your daily schedule to make you bitter towards your spouse, to make you irritable towards your children, to make you frustrated in the workplace, to make you afraid to share your faith, 
That's what will just happen. Extra pounds just happen. High blood sugar just happens. Stiff muscles just happen. Fitness, on the other hand, and health is a little bit more on purpose. And that's how it is at holiness. If holiness is the ultimate fitness, the character of God that we're striving for, if that's fitness, then no wonder the scriptures call us to pursue it. God commands his people as they come out of Egypt, be holy as I am holy. Peter grabs onto that and communicates it to the church in his first letter. Remember what God said. As you see his holiness, you pursue it. In just a handful of those verses in our affirmation of faith, we rehearsed God's purpose for us is holiness. We need to work hard at guarding our hearts against any sin that can encroach. It's interesting in having read through those Levitical chapters now in our family Bible reading, there are offerings for unintentional sins. You didn't even mean to do that. It it wasn't some act of rebellion, and yet you you crossed some boundary that God had established, some some level of uncleanness. You, You failed to do something that was required of you, and it's not even in your mind that you're guilty of anything. And you make those sacrifices for those unintentional sins. Why? Because it was to communicate a zeal for holiness, that holiness matters. It's the unholiness that just happens. So if it happened and I didn't even mean to, then I want to fix it. Lord, search me and know me so that I would not have any sin that has not been dealt with. This is what Haggai is calling these people to do. The temple's going to get built. God's concern is that holy hands build the temple and holy hearts will come and worship at that temple. Rather than thinking that we've got a temple, we're good, I went to church, I'm good. No, God wants our hearts. Well, next, the prophet turns to the painful reminder that number two, sin never ultimately satisfies. We learned this in chapter one as God told them, listen, you you ate and you weren't satisfied, you drank and you're still thirsty, you worked and you made money, but it was like you put it into a bag with holes and by the time you got home, the money was gone. You were never satisfied, and when that didn't bring you to repentance, I sent the drought, and I sent the pestilence so that you wouldn't have any satisfaction, any rest. Well, we have similar thoughts here. As Haggai establishes that problem with that stinging conclusion, the work of your hands is unclean, Verse 15, now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare when one came to the heap of 20 measures? And there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, and there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. The people were living selfishly. They were, they were tolerating little pet sins. 
little vices. You know, that's just the way I am. Oh, I know, I've struggled with this for a long time. I'll try to do better. They, they weren't concerned about holiness. And the prophet says, remember back to those days. He uses the expression, consider from this day onward. Because we're trying to move forward, but he's saying, in your consideration, don't forget the lesson. Because moving forward will be facilitated if you remember that sin never satisfies. You tolerate unholiness, and it will never work out for your best. Selfish, sinful living. And he asks a question in verse 16. How did you fare? That can sound a bit antagonistic. Especially when we say it the way we might say it to someone. How's that working out for you? It was your idea, and you stuck with it. How's it working out for you? And it's, it's stinging, but it's designed to show them, wait a minute, you were so insistent, your way was right. Now when everything's falling apart, you're forgetting this is the path you chose. The prophet with, with perfect truth and authority asks that kind of question. How did you fare in those days when you lived for self and weren't concerned about holiness? Sin will leave you feeling frustrated and empty. And if you're a believer on top of all that, guilty, shamed. God tries to make sin's danger and consequence really plain and clear to us in the word. In, in the original books of the law, he spelled it out really simply to his people. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings a curse. It's, it's there in the simplicity of the Proverbs. You can do life God's way or you can do life your own way. It's that fork in the road, the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness. God's way or my way. And then God says several times in Proverbs that there, there is a way that seems right to you. But the end thereof is ruin. Never satisfies. It never works out the way you thought it would. Because sin never ultimately satisfies. Haggai says to that people and to us today, don't forget this lesson of sin's emptiness. Once you've experienced that, and your heart's been turned back to the Lord, from this day forward, consider that lesson. Because when temptation comes moving forward, you'll remember, how does that go when I tolerate sin, when I don't deal with it? Consider your ways. It's the message of the prophet. Don't forget the lesson of sin's emptiness. Though it seems like this is all going downhill. They began the building, but now God is saying it's all contaminated. It's unclean because your hearts are harboring sin. So how should we look at the story as it's unfolding? We should agree, yes, because of sin, things are looking bad. But I want to point you now to the hope of holiness. Proverbs 28, whoever conceals his sin will not prosper. Don't tuck it away. Don't leave it undealt with. Search me, O God. Show me that sin. Because 
In contrast to whoever conceals his sin, not prospering, it says, but he who confesses and forsakes his sin will obtain mercy. This leads us to our third point. Mercy makes for new beginnings. Mercy makes for new beginnings. Why don't you see a key phrase in verses 18 and 19? Listen for it. Now then, consider from this day onward. Verse 18, consider from this day onward. So 15 and 18, two times we have the expression from this day onward. See, there's a lesson here in dealing with problems. Quickly get to how do we move forward. Whether it's your marriage, whether it's parents, you can, you can keep belaboring the failure. The prophet speaks to the failure. Your hearts are unclean and it's ruined the work of your hands. Now, from this day forward, let, let's quickly get to God's mercy. How does God treat us when we repent and we're ready to deal with our sin? Is it long lectures and reminders of Failure and how it happened and repeatedly happened. and Or is it quickly, okay, now moving forward. From this day forward, that's hope. That's hope for the one who's fallen. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. How? By giving them some hope that there is mercy for a new beginning. Of course, this language is found in Lamentations chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. This is why we make much of the gospel. This is why we sing of it each week. Because the mercy of God in Christ to forgive our sin is the same mercy that gives us a new start every day. So what was the big failure of the past week? Nail it cleanly. Don't say it was a bad habit or just the way you were. Name it as sin and it it came from an unclean heart. Ask God to search and try your heart. But having gone through that exercise of confessing and forsaking that sin, then let's move on because God's promise in Proverbs and in Haggai and anywhere else is mercy for a new beginning. I don't think we doubt that, but I don't think we like the confessing and forsaking a whole lot. So tackle that head on, believing that there is hope in holiness. There is hope in choosing God's way. There's hope in that new beginning. Someone may say, well, you don't understand how messed up my past has been. I probably don't. But do I need to understand your past to say God has said, from this day onward, I will bless you. Let's do it God's way. You say, well, You just don't know how selfish I've been and the bad habits I have. God is saying to a stubborn people, from this day onward. You don't know how long I've been in bondage to pornography or my anger or the fear of people. 
I probably don't know or understand. But I'm arguing I don't need to. Because I'm just here to tell you what God said. From this day onward, he will bless. He's asking us, what do you want? Do you want those things and the temporary satisfaction? Or do you want holiness? It looks like it'll cost you everything. It looks like it's going to cost you all that pleasure and temporary satisfaction. But the reality is, God's word is, from this day onward, I will bless you. What do you want? Holiness that brings God's blessing or unholiness that leaves you dissatisfied and ultimately leads to ruin God's curse. Brothers and sisters, mark this text. Revisit this verse often. Be reminded of God's mercy, his faithfulness, he says in Lamentations 3, to honor this promise that from this day onward, it's a new beginning. Well, let's add just a little bit more hope in our final point. Number four, grace gives blessing for nothing. Grace gives blessing for nothing. There's no transaction here. You didn't put money into a vending machine and get something back. No, instead you had nothing and God promises blessing. Verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month. Now in our context, that date means even more than just when did Haggai preach this. It means in real time, on a real calendar, in a real person's life, there is a moment where they say, I want God's way. I want holiness. And God says right there is where eternal change is happening. Right now, hearing a sermon from Haggai, bumbly communicated, God can do a work in your life that shapes the course of the rest of your days. On a specific day, he records it, in a specific month, somebody got a glimpse of the faithfulness of God who could be their portion and decided, I'll live that way from now on. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day of the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, verse 19, is the seed yet in the barn? The answer is no, it's not. But that's not the end. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. Not only is there nothing stored up in the barn, everything they have has been put out to plant. And no harvest has come in yet. The conclusion is, there is nothing. Clearly, the future hangs in the balance here. Remember the other question before, is there seed in the barn? How did that fare for you when you decided to go your own way, tolerate a little bit of sin, and yet go about being busy doing outward things. How did that work for you? It didn't. You have nothing. But from this day onward, what does he say? You have nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. 
My friends, when you compare the stark observation, nothing, to God saying, I will bless you, we realize this is the gospel unfolding for us in the language of an ancient building project and a stubborn people. Nothing, then notice that significant word of transition, but I will bless. You bring nothing but your stubbornness, your sinfulness, and God says, but that nothing is outweighed by my blessing. As sinners, we have nothing to merit God's favor. We have only our sinful pursuits. And what have they left us with? Nothing. We're the prodigal son in the pig pen of sin's broken promises. We have nothing to offer. And in our poor theology, we think, well, maybe I'll go back and just be a slave. I could never be a son again. God says that's not how it works. You bring your nothing. And you receive the sufficiency of Christ. The blessing of God. You see, when you were the prodigal in the pig pen, Ephesians says, but God who is rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Dash for an exclamation. By grace you have been saved. Blessing for nothing. The riches of heaven for the pig pen of sin. You had nothing and God promises everything. So now take this into the Christian life for those of us hearing this message of Haggai. God doesn't need you to to serve in every capacity and do all these right things to, to find his pleasure. He needs you to have a heart that is consumed by holiness. He wants you to hate sin like he hates sin. And not just the sin of others, but the sin in your own heart. Blessing for nothing. God says from this day forward, some of you are saying, even just the past week, I don't even really want to think on, well, think on it so that you can rightly confess and find God's mercy so that from this day onward, and maybe that means you get along with God this afternoon and you spend some time asking him to search your heart because something's not right. But as he does, circle the day on the calendar. God did it in Haggai's day. He said, this is, a, this is significant. When you decided to consider your ways and live for holiness. Blessing for nothing. And as we close, let me just help you understand something about this promised blessing. Because we're talking about all these crops and harvests. And and frankly, these very passages in the prophets are cited by the prosperity gospel preachers as the explanation for their error. They will tell us that if you live God's way, your barns will be filled. Your bank accounts will be filled. 
You can throw away your medical files because God will give healing. And you won't suffer. And that's why we call it, kind of with some animosity, the health and wealth gospel. But mind you, they will point to these kinds of verses. See, they weren't living for God and there was no seed in the barn and nothing was producing. God even says, I sent hardship because of your sin. On the flip side, if you live for God, everything will be great. You won't have those struggles. How do we answer that? How do we rightly interpret these verses? Well, listen, if you're, if you're reading through your Old Testament, or at least familiar with it, you will understand that in the Old Covenant, God's blessing was most often expressed in very evident, tangible ways. Two primarily. You'll see it in the, in the book of Joshua, in the conquest. You'll see it through the kings. You'll see it in the Psalms. One of them was vict- military victory over your enemies. Can you think of how many Psalms talk about being delivered from the hand of their enemies? Well, they were real enemies pursuing David or other psalmists, and, and they were delivered from those enemies because that was a very tangible expression of God's blessing that could teach this principle. The other expression of blessing was agricultural bounty, the language of the crops producing and your herds will multiply. Or in judgment, the crops would fail and they herds would die off. So military success, agricultural success, were God's way of teaching this lesson that when you belong to God, when you do life his way, when you're concerned about covenant faithfulness and holiness, God will bless. And that military and agricultural blessing served as massive illustrations of even better blessings to come. This fits with our study of the Old Testament a month ago, how so much of the Old Testament was designed to show us something better to come. And the better to come were the spiritual blessings that we rehearsed by faith from Ephesians and the affirmation of faith that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places and spiritual blessings are ours. So don't be confused when you see that God uses the language of bounty, physical, material bounty to teach us this principle that living God's way is the blessed life. It's just that blessed life takes on a fuller definition as we grow in our New Testament learning. But think about it. As we see in the New Testament that God's blessing is so much more than material prosperity, and even a step beyond that, that God's spiritual blessing is so much greater in our lives that at times it may not include material blessing. So Saul can be blessed. He can know peace and joy and be renewed in the inner man, though he's losing everything around him that is comfortable and good. That's making the point that the spiritual blessing the old covenant was pointing to is better than material prosperity and American world dominance. But if we're honest, we would recognize that even in the Old Testament, God's blessing of peace and abiding joy was even there considered to be greater than God's promises of material blessing. 
you see that as well in the Psalms. That despite the circumstances, they found God to be a fortress, a rock, as we sang in that last song. They recognized, even in the Psalms, that though this old covenant and its illustrative purpose was to point us to greater blessings, God was giving those greater blessings even now. And perhaps this is nowhere better seen than in the prophet Habakkuk, who in the very absence of material blessings sings a hymn of celebration about the blessings that are greater. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flocks are cut off from the fold, there's no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's a glimpse into the New Testament to help us understand there are greater blessings than military might and crops producing. But frankly, even in the Old Testament, they knew that. They knew belonging to God was foremost of blessing. And the other things, they served their purpose well to communicate God's covenant faithfulness and his promise to bless his people. From nothing to blessing, this is indeed amazing grace. Holiness doesn't just happen. Sin never ultimately satisfies. And so pursue mercy that makes for new beginnings and pursue grace that gives blessing for nothing. I close with this question. Does God's evaluation in verse 14 apply in any way to you when he says what they offer is unclean? On this Lord's Day, let us consider our ways and know that there is hope in holiness. Heavenly Father, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in that Redeemer's revealed name, Jesus. Amen.